Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 363. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 363 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, and mixer, Charles H. Root III, better known as Chaz Root, who runs Electric Owl Works, which is a residential recording studio in upstate New York. Chaz and I met at a party in Nashville. In fact, it was a party that former WCA guest Pete Lyman and Reed Shippen were throwing, and I've stayed in touch with Chaz since then. Very excited to have him on to talk about the world of Electric Owl Works and his journey to get there. Chaz Root coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about taking a break from the audio party. Working in audio is an amazing thing. Doesn't matter the discipline. When you are really enjoying the experience, it's like being at a party. And like being at a real party and having a great time, sometimes you need to step away from that party and regroup and get your thoughts together so that the next party you go to can be just as fun as the party you are currently at. I'm sure you follow my analogy here. Let's face it, we are a group of individuals who love to obsess over our favorite thing, the world of audio. We love to obsess about our gear, our techniques, plan our next session, our next gig. We spend an enormous amount of time doing it. And not to mention, of course, the gigs themselves, which hopefully bring you pleasure in your life. But let's not forget, outside of our world of audio exists a whole nother world. And that whole other world can definitely influence and inspire everything within the world of audio for us. It's almost like an absence makes the heart grow fonder kind of situation. I know for myself that when taking vacations, uh, it's hard for me not to leave on vacation without taking some sort of portable rig with me. There's always a laptop, there's always an interface, there's always, of course, a couple sets of headphones and the ability to do some level of work while I'm on vacation. Not exactly ideal for those around me, but yeah, we want to be prepared. But there's something satisfactory about not working during vacations or about taking a break from our work in general. Engaging in our hobbies, engaging in our families, spending time outside of our world of audio, I feel can better inform how we do our gigs. Conversations with people in other industries, conversations with family members about things other than audio can always lead to a better experience with audio. If we spend day in day out doing the gigs that we love doing and we forget about the outside world, well, to some of us, it can grow stale. To some of us, we can't get enough. I don't care if you play sports, if you are into photography, if you are just into hanging out and watching TV with your family or taking your kids for a walk around the neighborhood. There's so many different things that one can do that pulls us out of that world and helps us enjoy that world upon return. 
Many of us are well aware of the scenarios where, say, for example, we go to a studio with a band and we burn the midnight oil. And we know that point at which we should stop, go home, get some rest and come back the next day to have a better session. Well, it's just like that in the long run, too. I think we should step away, get some perspective, breathe a little bit, think about other things, whether that be our families, world events, community things going on, whatever it is, just other things, reading books that have nothing to do with audio. And then when we come back, we feel refreshed, we have a different perspective, and we possibly have the 30,000 foot view that we need in order to do our gigs better. Maybe you've been obsessing on a mix that you just can't get out of your head, you can't see your way around it, and you're stuck. Well, maybe it's time to just step away from all of it and go do something else and come back. And I'm sure that the solution will present itself as soon as you hit play. You'll know what you need to do. If you've been doing this for any amount of time, your gut reactions and feelings about a piece of audio that you're working on will come to the surface as soon as you hit play. And if you can't see getting away for a couple days because you just don't want to do it, then find something that will completely take you out of the world of audio for a bit. Maybe it's a hike. You know, getting out and walking in nature can completely take us away from technology, from the enclosed spaces that we find ourselves in most of the time. And it's a great way to just refresh, get some exercise, get the blood flowing, get the new thoughts flowing, and then returning with a fresh perspective. And that can be the short term. And my suggestion for the long term is, is don't make everything about audio all the time. I know I am super guilty of, you know, finishing a mix, reading an audio magazine, listening to an audio podcast, and just continuing the obsession, continuing the audio party in my head. So having some type of hobby or regular event that you do to get yourself away from audio can be a great way to strengthen your bond with audio, whether that be fishing or sports or photography. Photography is something that I really gravitate towards because it allows me to completely take my head out of the world of audio and put all my thoughts into the visual. And if you don't have a hobby that you are crazy about, maybe you just want to hang out with a good friend who doesn't want to talk about audio and or hang out with your family or your significant other and go do something besides audio related things. Go do that. I think you will find that your love and bond of audio will stay true, will stay strong, and you'll become better at what you do instead of staying at the party and obsessing. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Chaz Root here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Chaz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It is an honor and pleasure to be here. So thank you. It's great to have you. We record this post-Thanksgiving. You've just celebrated a birthday, and I'm celebrating my birthday today as well as my parents' anniversary. Happy birthday and anniversary. You're talking to us, I assume, from upstate New York? That is correct. We are in lovely South Wales, New York, which is about a half hour south of downtown Buffalo. We are finally moved into our new place, which kind of looks like a cottage or villa you'd see up at Lake Tahoe. So we're in the woods on the side of a hill. It is snowing right now. They're forecasting up to eight inches. So it is a beautiful sort of winter day here. Yeah. Wow. First thing I want to ask you right off the bat. So you were born Charles Root III. Yes, Charles Harry Root III. It was not my idea, but yes. <laughs> it never is our idea, is it? <laughs> so Charles Root II, your father, and Charles Root I, his father, I assume. Correct. What was the history there? It sounds very aristocratic. That's why I ask. Yeah, it does. and It sounds very posh and very very like European. You know, 
The family name before it was Root was Kushner, and then it was changed to Kazmarek. And this is like back pre-World War I day. So on my father's father's side, they weren't Roots because Root is a Scottish name. They were actually Prussian. So there were some German and Polish people. Some of them were Jewish. Some of them were Catholic. And by the time they got to the States, I think around World War I days when there was a lot of anti-German feeling in the country, they had changed their name from a German name to a Polish name to Kazmarek or Kaczmarek. So my great-grandfather was Jeremy Kazmarek, but he changed his name to Harry Root. And then his son, my grandfather, was Charles H. Kazmarek Root. So his birth certificate actually has like both last names. And then my father's birth certificate says Charles H. K. Root II. And my mother thought that was all nonsense. So mine just says Charles H. Root III. So um, my father's father's side were German, Polish, Russian, some Jewish, some Catholic. And then my grandfather, Charles Root Sr., married my Spanish grandma, as we called her. So her family was from uh, Barcelona, Spain originally, but she came through Puerto Rico. So that's just all the craziness on my dad's side. (laughs) And how did the name Chaz come about? My grandfather's nickname was Chaz. So when my grandfather was still with us and for family holiday and gathering things and stuff, if somebody said Charles or Chuck, the three of us would turn. So it became my grandfather was Chaz, my dad was Chuck, and I was Chucky because I was like the little kid. So (laughs) um, (laughs) a lot of my friends, like in the 80s and stuff, didn't like Chuck. It reminded them too much of Peppermint Patty, I think, and Charlie Brown. So a lot of my friends started calling me Chaz, and I always thought Chaz was cool because it rhymes with jazz, you know, and, and I grew up being like, like like a big jazz fan. It's like, yeah, jazz, Chaz, you know. So it just kind of worked out, and it just, through friends, and um, since my grandfather passed, my, my grandmother actually kind of encouraged it because my grandmother, my Spanish grandma was always like, yeah, you're definitely a Chaz, so go for it. <laughs> Thanks, Grandma. Well, it's it's how I know you and 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 refer yeah. to you. Whenever I get a Christmas card each year from you, and it's signed Chaz, <laughs> I I know exactly who that is from. And I just had to get a little history out of the way there because I wanted to understand what the backstory of that was. So, where did you grow up originally? Well, I was born in Buffalo, and when I was an infant, my father, who worked for W. T. Grant's, the old retail company. He was transferred to Rochester, so we moved to Rochester when I was young. And then he was in the Air Force Reserves and got called to active duty, I think, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And after that, we moved to Ohio. So I was in Kent, Ohio, New Philadelphia, Ohio, and Akron, Ohio, where I started kindergarten. And after that, my dad got transferred. We moved to St. Mary's, Pennsylvania, which is a very small little town. Lived there for a year or so, and then back to the Buffalo area by the time I was in like first grade. So I lived all over the Northeast or Great Lakes area. So from like first grade on, I lived in the Buffalo area. And after college and all that stuff, I traveled and moved around and I was in Pittsburgh for a while. And uh, But I generally, my formative years were in the Buffalo area. I don't have the outrageous accent. <laughs> and that's because it, I grew up with a speech impediment. So I had a really bad stutter and I couldn't say certain words. So like uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I was going to speech therapists who taught me to speak a certain way. 
Consequently, I avoid certain words and vowel and consonant, <laughs> things like the plague. And I just speak a certain way because I have to, or I'll start like stuttering really bad. Yeah. In Buffalo growing up, were you in band? Did you, did music oh, yeah. attract you? Yeah, absolutely. So I got my first guitar from my uncle, who was a guitar player. He was a Coast Guard guy, and he got me a guitar, I think, when I was in third grade, something like that. And I really couldn't play it very well. And then I taught myself piano in seventh and eighth grade. And then I started taking real guitar lessons, I think, in eighth grade. And within a year or so, I was playing in goofy little high school bands and stuff. But by senior year, all that jamming nonsense had distilled down into a, a band that started playing gigs. And back then, because this is like early 80s, the uh, drinking age in New York State was still 18 years old. Oh. And when I was a senior in high school, I turned 18. So you could be a senior in high school and be legal to go out and drink and play gigs, which was pretty cool, you know? Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I can't remember the year, but I think the federal government said it was going to be 21. And I think the trick was is that to encourage states to change the drinking age, I think they uh, were threatening withholding of highway improvement funds or something like that. Yeah. Because it went from 18 to 19 and I was old enough where I cleared that hurdle. So I was still legal. And then it went from 19 to 21 when, when that went through, I was just over 21 years old, so I was still legal. So luckily for, for me, I was old enough to make that cut each time. <laughs> so it didn't impact playing shows and stuff like that. But my first bands, I played six strings. So I was, you know, rhythm and lead, background vocals, and my younger brother played drums. So when he wasn't using his drum set, I just started playing on his drums and I because I really like playing drums a lot. So I kind of taught myself that and... When I was in college, oh, I, I was also classically trained on six strings. So I took rock lessons from a great guy named Steve Glore, who was into the ventures and surf stuff and 60s stuff. And he had, he had this all these old Mose rights that I just drooled over like as a teenager. And then I took classical lessons, and that kind of led me into playing bass because like my fingers got really good from playing classical. Mm -hmm. And a guy asked me one, like I was in college, he's like, hey, you will play bass too, right? And I lied and I said, well, yeah. And he's like, good, because I need a bass player for a band. So I went out and bought a PVT-40. I got an Ampeg SVT rig, and this is like early 80s, and started playing gigs like, like playing bass, which was a riot. But yeah, for me growing up with music, the music thing was important because I sat around in my room because when we first moved into the Buffalo area as a kid, we were like in Amherst, which is a kind of like a first-ring suburb of Buffalo. It's a pretty big suburb, lots of people, classic neighborhoods and suburbs. And my parents bought like 10 acres of land out in the middle of nowhere and moved us out to the country. So we were like the last house on the left of a dead-end road, and there was like nobody around. And this is end of eighth grade, start of high school. So I started a new school, didn't know anyone. There was nobody around because we basically lived in the woods. So I got really into playing and my music. And then by 10th and 11th grade, I was blind for two years. So I literally what? suffered. Yeah, I was blind for two years. I suffered trauma to each eye. I was hitting one eye with a football. And well, here's a weird thing. I was born with cataracts. I had what's called congenital cataracts. So I could never really see that well. So I was born with like the eyes of a 90-year-old. So I had cataracts when I was born. And when I suffered trauma to each eye, it caused the cataract to explode 
And so by 10th grade, after getting hit with this football, I couldn't see anymore. And I could always like hear things that like other people couldn't hear. And I kind of wonder if it's like my brain was compensating for my crappy like eyesight. Yeah. So I was really into the music thing and listening and taking apart stuff. My 10th and 11th grade of high school, I was mostly tutored at home by teachers from the high school because I couldn't go to school. And the cataract surgery back then wasn't what it is now where you're in and out like same day. It was this crazy, you know, kind of barbaric late seventies thing where you have stitches in your eyes for months and, and you can't move your head and you can't lower your head lower than your heart. It was just this crazy, crazy thing where you had to sit still and not move and not pick up anything, you know, heavier than a gallon of milk. So I literally just sat in my room with all my old electroharmonics foot pedals and my Marshall half stack and my Explorer guitar and made noises with echo boxes and tried recording myself on tape players and doing all this while I couldn't see a damn thing. So I had to like, like memorize in the dark, you know, with my blindness where all the buttons were so I could make sounds. So it forced me to really kind of use my ears and really focus in on on sound. And luckily, I got my, my vision back after a couple surgeries. So by senior year, I was back in high school and I didn't get my driver's license till I was probably 18 or something just because I couldn't see. But luckily, my vision has mostly held out. I'm, I'm kind of blind in my one eye now because I had a retinal detachment back in 2000. Mm-hmm. So I still have vision in one eye. So my career paths as a kid You know, I was into music and computer programming and science geeky stuff and music, of course. And my uh, parents were never on board with with the music thing, not unless I got accepted at Juilliard for playing classical. But the whole studio thing, they were not down with. They wanted me to do the traditional parent thing. You need to be an architect or a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. So, You know, I want to dissect this a little bit because I'm, I'm curious, first off, growing up, as a kid and the insecurities we already have can be tough enough, but you had the speech impediment. You had this cataract issue at a young age. Yeah. And I'm wondering if music really provided a safe Harbor for you to excel in a, it was something you clearly were good at and it gave you an identity. And I'm wondering if that was the case. Did you, did you feel like that was, that was your place to hang? Yeah, that in writing. So I was a really big writer too. So I was really into English and, and art stuff. So, you know, I was a very good visual artist, but when I lost my eyesight, so, you know, because I was going to go to to art school, but even when I got my eyesight back, I was like, I can't trust these eyes. So do I really want to go to art school or be a graphic artist or designer? Because I was into film and into graphic stuff. And I was like the precocious kid that by kindergarten, I knew who Penderecki was. I knew who Frank Lloyd Wright was. I knew who Stanley Kubrick was. You know, I was just a really (laughs) geeky, precocious little kid in the talented and gifted programs. And, you know, I've tried real hard to, I don't want to say pretend that I'm not one of those people, but I found not safe harbor, but just something to do. I was kind of like in solitary confinement for a couple of years, you know, with, with the blindness. And even without that, we were moved into the backwoods of upstate and there was hardly anybody around. So, you know, this is the late seventies. So you had to find ways to entertain yourself. And I would just plow through liner notes on every record when I could see, or have people read them to me, or I'd had a subscription to Rolling Stone magazine and spin or whatever from the time I was like in seventh grade. So I would devour every little bit of information about 
Eddie Kramer in the studio with Kiss or whoever. I just knew who, all these names of Glenn Johns and Sir George Martin and like all these people, Bob Ezrin. So for me, it was an intellectual kind of like exercise. And that's something I got from both of my grandfathers who were both engineers. So they were both into learning, knowledge, and education and encouraged us to explore our, our artistic side as well as our intellectual side. So yeah, I guess it was a safe harbor. And I did a lot of writing too, because the thing with music and writing and the thing that attracted me to recording was because of the inconsistencies of your Zen existence from moment to, to moment and me not knowing if I'm going to see in 10 seconds or if I'm going to stutter and blow a job interview or blow a college interview, right? All those in things that are out of your control. The thing about writing and music that attracted me was the fact that I could kind of control this and almost portray myself in a better way. So I don't have to worry about fumbling if I can like do an overdub, right? Or I don't have to worry about writing something bad because I can just go back and fix it. So I was doing a lot of creative writing and and a lot of sound stuff. It just was what I did because I really didn't have anything else to do. So yeah. And it was enjoyable. But I, I was also the the kid who had a chemistry set too. So I was doing science experiments and I was garbage picking stereo systems and radios and tearing them apart and building building my own crystal radios and small little amplifiers. So I was like a little geek. I was a total little geek. When did the idea of being an audio professional in any way, shape, or form start to enter your brain? And when did you act on it? Uh, actually, it first crossed my mind. I think we had just moved back to the Buffalo area from Pennsylvania. So I would have been in first grade. And we were driving around in my dad's he had this like big station wagon. I think it was a Mercury or something. And there was a song playing on the AM radio. And it was the first time I heard a wah-wah pedal, mm -hmm. right? And it was a song that had a wah-wah pedal on it. And I never heard that before. And I, I was like, hey, what's that sound? And my mom's like, what sound? I'm like, the, the sound coming out of the radio. And I was, so I did this fake wah-wah-wah sound, you know, trying to make the wah-wah sound. And my parents kind of both looked at each other and didn't have an answer. And my mother said, well, you know how your grandfather's an engineer and invents stuff? I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, there's these places called recording studios where they have engineers and they make really cool sounds like that. I'm like, oh, okay. So this is like first grade. And that got the idea in my head of like, okay, these people are doing like this sonic trickery. It's like magic that they're doing, right? And it's just a filter, but I was in first grade and didn't know. So by the time I was in high school and toward the end of high school, my vision came back and I was in bands and all the music classes. The music teacher I had who taught music theory and chorus, she had a reel-to-reel, -reel, I think it was a TAC or Tascan. It was like a two-track, three-head tape deck. And she let me take it home for a project. So I started recording. And what I learned, and this is like in, what, 79 or 80, because I'm pretty old, I discovered that I could take the output from this reel-to-reel -reel that I recorded and dump it onto a, just a regular tape deck at home and then bounce it back in. And I kind of knew about bouncing from reading about Sgt. Pepper and the Beatles and all that stuff. So my high school band, I started recording live off the board stuff to two-track and trying to get really good sounds. Plus, I did a lot of live sound too, which I think helped. But that's what got me into it. Hearing hearing that wah-wah pedal, and I forgot what song it was, but it was probably some funk thing because my, my mother was totally into R&B and Motown and, and jazz stuff. So we always had like cool like funk and soul music playing in the house. 
tons of vinyl. My parents had like great vinyl, but yeah, it just got me into it. And then, um, I think it was between my senior year and first year of college, a local radio station had this contest where you could send your song in. They'd pick like 10 songs. And if they picked you, they would send you to a recording studio and record you and put you out on this album. So you had to record yourself. So a buddy of mine had written a bunch of songs and I was like, okay, let's record these in my parents' basement and we're going to send them into the radio station and see what happens. So all I had was my brother's cassette deck and my buddy's cassette deck. So we did everything live through a mixing board into my brother's cassette deck into two track and then dumped that back into mono one track on the second cassette deck, then recorded on that tape and just kind of built up stuff that way, like old school, old school. Yeah. And this is like 81, let's say, right? And plus, remember, we lived out in the middle of nowhere, so... I didn't find out about, like, let's say, the Fostex X15 until like two years later, and I instantly bought one. But yeah, I just did it the old school way. It's like I read, I learned, I'd go to the library and read stuff, just devour every bit of information I could about Alan Parsons or Bob Ezrin or Shelley Ackes and stuff like that. But I was struggling, though, and my parents were concerned about me enough to the point where they sent me to a shrink, I think, like right in between senior year and my first freshman year of college, because they didn't think I was applying myself because you weren't applying yourself. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like wicked applying myself. I'm doing stuff that you can't dream of. So they sent me to the shrink who was like, hey, you know, my parents are telling me that you're dabbling a lot with music and, you know, trying to record stuff and all that. And I'm like, yeah. And well, my college or Navy buddies, this guy named... Bill Simzik, who's the guy who did all the Eagles records. I'm like, oh yeah, my dad has those records. And I was, you know, 18. I was not an Eagles fan back then. But but then he's like, well, he did a record with a guy that you may have heard of named Glenn Johns. And my ears perked up. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And so this shrink guy kind of saved me because I think he was testing me. And what he basically did was he saw how into it I was and how much knowledge I had about recording and, and that entire process. And he went back to my parents and said, look, your son's fine. He's just into something that you're not understanding. It's not that he's not applying himself. He knows more about this stuff than I do. And, you know, it just kind of saved me and got my parents off my butt. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just weird, weird, weird. It's like this synchronicity thing. I want to ask, were you an only child or did you have siblings? No, I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. <laughs> oh, okay. That explains I'm the a oldest bit. of three. Okay. So my, my next youngest brother passed away at a very early age. And then my youngest brother, who was born like four and a half years after me, is still with us. And he's, he's a geek too. He's a biochemical engineer, like does gene splicing. Actually, he was part of the team that developed the first rapid HIV AIDS testing kit back in the day. Wow. So we're, we're all kind of geeks, but have this artistic side too. Yeah. But being the first kid, I kind of get it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30.
about a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. When did a professional scenario materialize for you as an audio professional? I guess that's a matter of it's a matter of definition. Yeah. I started recording other bands. Actually, I had this little portable studio I would take out with my Fostex X15, and I was recording bands. This was like mid to late 80s into the early 90s. So I started recording a ton of bands. Because my friend Robbie Takek from the Goo Goo Dolls, he had the keys to the Trackmaster studio in Buffalo. So he was recording a lot of bands after hours there. And I go in and help and stuff. But there were a lot of bands that couldn't afford even like the midnight budget sessions at the studio. So I was like, well, I got all this gear. I got a bunch of microphones. I have a couple rack mount Ashley compressors and some reverbs and a little mixing board. So I'll just go start recording people at their rehearsal spaces or at clubs. And that's what I did. I think the first band I recorded was like a country band, probably like an 85 or something. And then by 87, 88 through maybe 92 or so, I was just like on the road all the time with this portable studio that I'd set up. So a lot of the recordings I did were actually geared to go. There's a bunch of SUNY schools up here. So there's one called Buff State, which is a state university of New York college at Buffalo. And Buff State had like the college radio station back in the day. So, mm. and they were the only station back in the college radio days that would play replacements or Husker Du or The Cure or REM even back then, what we would have called college radio or college rock. So all the local bands, there was a local show, had an opportunity to get their recordings on there. And there are all these bands that if you were on that show your viability, your ability to get gigs at clubs and stuff was that much raised. So all these bands wanted to have recordings that would get them on the radio. So I would basically do these demos that were geared toward getting them airplay. These silly little four tracks that I did that actually sounded great, but hmm. I actually went to the radio station and looked at their transfer process because the station, all the music was played on these things called carts. They used to use in the radio back in the day. Yeah. And it was kind of like an eight track thing, but it was an actual cartridge. And they would transfer the audio from vinyl or whatever onto these carts and they could just plug these things in and out of the player. So what I did was went and had one of the DJs play me a cart and then play me the source so I could hear what the difference was. So I knew how to kind of gauge my mixes because I'm oh, a geek. Yeah. It's like back in like late eighties, early nineties, I was like, okay, I need to make these tapes sound as good as possible for airplay. 
I was kind of getting paid sometimes, but a lot of these bands, they didn't have money to go into a big studio. So I was cutting them like super good deals, but it was the start and recording to four track, either the X-15 or a reel to reel, it forces you and the artist to make decisions and get really good sounds up front, which is stuff I learned from Rudy Van Gelder, Mm. Al Schmidt stuff, just getting good sounds to tape when you only have four tracks to play with at the end, you can only do so much with, you know. So that was where I got my start, doing demos and pre-production. So I did a lot of pre-production. It's just weird how this stuff snowballs. So I did pre-production for two Splat Cat records. They were a known garage band back in the 80s into the 90s. And that kind of got me places too. They were recording at Trackmaster, the actual album, with this gentleman named Armin John Petrie, who's a friend of mine, who's a uh, producer and engineer who's done 10,000 Maniacs, Goo Goo Dolls, Sixpence on the Richer. So he's this platinum selling engineer guy. Mm-hmm. So my, my demo tape was in the cassette deck at the studio because they were referencing the pre-production while they were tracking the actual album. So Armand, he had made a Faders Up mix and a rough mix of the album he had recorded up to that point. And the next day they came into the studio and he hit play on the tape deck and was playing back the uh, tape. And he was like, man, my mix sounds really, I don't remember my mix sounding this good. This is amazing. I guess I really nailed it, you know? And the guys in the band started laughing and they're like, that's not your mix. That's the four track demo tape Chuck did from pre-production. And he's like, no way, no way. So he pulls the tape out of the tape deck and it's got my handwriting with a Sharpie on it. And he's like, oh yeah, this is Chuck's thing. So he literally stopped the session and called me and congratulated me. He's like, dude, I can't believe you did this on a four track. <laughs> it just sounds like amazing. So that opened doors because people saw the level of intensity and attention to detail that I was putting into things that other people would just kind of laugh off, like demos or pre-production. My geeky kind of obsessive compulsive side, I just wanted to make sure things were were right for people. So if they're paying me a few bucks or buying me lunch and dinner for three days in a row, then I kind of owe them. So that opened doors. And then that got me invited into the studio for sessions. So I would go and help Armand at the studio when he was recording Goo Goo Dolls or 10,000 Maniacs, or I'd get to tape op. So that was a big deal, being able to like go in the studio and hang out and just be a fly on the wall and be second engineer, or they let you tape op and stuff. Then they taught me how to clean the tape machines and calibrate them and bias them and all that stuff. So just starting small And finding ways to leverage that and segue that into bigger and better things, it's a different world now. The whole studio scene is not what it was, but that whole mindset of doing good for people, that good karma thing, Mm -hmm. I think it really helps. It does eventually pay off at the end. I want to talk about Electric Alworks. Sure. Could you give me the bullet point hit list of where you went from that moment that you just left off on to the point of Electric Alworks? Yeah, well, let's see, bullet point. After that stuff, which is early to mid-90s, I then started working with a friend who had a studio, a guy named Billy Brandau, had a ADAT Mackie classic late 90s studio called Elvis the Cat. We did lots of demos and stuff, and this is like 97 through 2000. Then I moved to New York City for a while. Then after 9-11 happened, moved back upstate and kind of tinkered and dabbled with, geez, do I want to do a uh, portable recording studio thing like I used to do or actually set up shop somewhere? So 
I dabbled with a portable thing. And then by 2014, I was like, you know what? I'm getting older and I'm sick of hauling all this gear around, you know? So let's just set up shop. So my wife was like, yeah, let's go find a big old country house. And we were kind of inspired by Dave Fridman, who's down the road from us an hour, at Tarbox Road. And Eric and Steve at Dirt Floor Recording, who you haven't talked to, you should, in Connecticut. They have this log cabin kind of in the woods they record at. And that whole residential recording studio concept of having people come and stay with you like they did at the Caribou Ranch days or the places in the UK. Oh, yeah. So we were looking for properties and old homes or whatever out in the country and decided, let's just find a big old house and set up shop there. Because if Richard Dodd can record the Traveling Wilburys in somebody's kitchen or living room in L.A., There's no reason why we can't do something like that here. So we found inspiration from those who had done similar things before us and started Electric Owlworks. We went and got incorporated or got the LLC, so it's an official business. And then we also got Electric Owlworks Records, which is a small indie label. So that's an actual company and Rachel's Owl Music, which is our music publishing company. Because what I found from, let's say, 2010 on was that the whole recording thing has changed a lot and so many more people, artists are recording themselves. And I was getting calls from a lot of artists who had recorded themselves or perhaps recorded elsewhere who needed mixes done or mastering done. And they were like, hey, I'm not set up with BMI or ASCAP. I don't know how to distribute. I don't know how to do this or that. So we're like, if we can offer those services, in addition to recording, mixing and mastering, if you want to go through our publishing, that's an option. If you want to distribute through our sort of imprint or like little indie label, we can do that. So Electric Outworks, we try to educate artists to give them the knowledge to either do it themselves or if they're comfortable with us doing it, then hmm. then we'll do it for them. But it's recording, mixing, mastering, uh, music publishing if you want it, and we'll distribute if you want it. So that's what we decided to, to do and officially started it in 2014 and have been having no fun ever since. <laughs> so this building, it's a house in upstate New York in the outskirts, right? Yeah. It started off as a hunting cabin in uh, 1940, and a prominent cancer research scientist doctor bought it in like 1960, and he was a very, very wealthy man and owned like six or seven homes throughout the state. This was his summer playhouse that was filled with millions of dollars of Ming Dynasty antiques and stuff. And it turned into this crazy, sprawling, mid-century Frank Lloyd Wright meets the Brady Bunch complex. Hmm. So it's about 5,300 square feet with really big rooms, 14, 16-foot ceilings. And I was here, actually, a a band I was in a few years ago, the bass player's boyfriend is a nephew of the doctor who owned the place, and we were here for a cocktail party. And I walked in, and I was like, oh, my God, it looks like Rudy Van Gelder's studio in Jersey with the high cathedral ceilings and the beams. And I was like, man, I would love to record a record in here, right? And the uh, doctor sadly passed away. He was in his 90s, and the house went on the market. And... I told my wife about it, and she decided, yeah, let's let's go look at it. Let's go look at it. Because we were already in a house that we had converted into a studio like two miles from here that was only like 3,300 square feet. This one's 2,000 square feet more. And she's like, this place is so cool. So it's built on the side of a hill with a creek and waterfall on the side. So in the live room, it has almost like floor-to-ceiling windows And it's kind of this triangular-shaped or pentagon-shaped room. If you've ever seen those old videos from Le Studio in Canada with Rush or April Wine playing. Right. 
right? With the woods in the background and I the Florida ceiling. That. Right, with Neil Pert in front of the big thing of windows. And it's Our room, snowing in the background. Yep. I've watched those videos. Yep. That's exactly what this room looks like. I walked in and I was like, oh my God, it's Le Studio meets Rudy Van Gelder's joint with the big ceilings. And I was like, I want to record a record here. So, you know, it was sort of a no-brainer. And it's this big sprawling house in the woods that in Tahoe or down by my mother-in-law's place in Orange County, this would be a $6 million house or a $7 million house or more. Oh, in Tahoe right now, it'd probably be like an eight to $10 million house yeah, right. for 5,000 square feet. So, but like, you know, in Buffalo or if you're in Mus Muscle Shoals or something like that, you can get these great old places for cheap. So we got it for a lot less than that. So we've just been renovating. So we bought this house a while ago, but because of COVID, there were some issues getting work done on it. Mm -hmm. And because this house is like in the middle of nowhere, all the water is well water, plus there's a septic system. And that wasn't working after we bought the place. So getting the work done took a while. And the estate of the doctors had like $10,000 in escrow to cover the water systems because they knew there were problems. But getting through the attorneys to get them to release those funds for us to actually get the water fixed took about a year of legal wrangling just to get the money. So we ended up spending 12 grand out of our own pocket just to get the water and septic working and then got reimbursed. But that was a big legal thing. There was no water for a while. So between COVID and legal things, we were hoping to be fully up and running 100% a year or two years ago, but now I'm doing my mixing and mastering and stuff, but I'm tracking in other studios at this point, except for some like little overdub things. But there's light at the end of the tunnel, I assume, oh, because yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're getting it together. Yep. And my A room, I've been following your adventures closely with, with the Dolby in your room because... We've decided to pull the trigger and do the Dolby thing in our big room because our big control room is like 26 by 18. Wow. Something like that. Yeah. Which is one of the doctor's living rooms. So it's a big room. It's going to be a great Atmos room. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm moving at a snail's pace just because I'm trying to do it financially smart for my taste. Yep. Well, we're trying to do the same thing too. We're trying not to use credit cards. Similar to you. I mean, if I can sell some gear to help finance moving in a new direction, great. But on the other hand, I'm not opposed to taking 48 months, same as cash deals. <laughs> so I, I hear that. Without getting too far into it, but you know. Well, so I just want to sum it up and tell me if I'm getting anything wrong here. You and your wife, you buy this building, you have a little trouble getting it up to speed, but now I'm going to knock on wood as I say this, whereas we're on maybe the other side of the COVID thing, possibly. Not in Erie County, New York. Okay. You've been through some challenges to get the place up and running, but you yeah. have a plan and you're moving forward. And in the end, you're going to have a huge place. So Yeah, with guest rooms and everything, yeah. My question is, is how long does it take to get there from, say, New York, from Manhattan? On JetBlue, it's a 45-minute plane ride. If you're driving, if it's me driving, five hours. If it's normal people driving, maybe six okay. hours drive. So we're about half an hour, 20 minutes out of downtown Buffalo. So oh. right there is where the Peace Bridge is and the border to Canada. So that's about an hour south of Toronto. 
And we're about like an hour from Rochester and maybe three hours north of Pittsburgh and Cleveland. So if people want to come and record here, that's great. I actually have people wanting to come down from Canada or Binghamton or Northern Pennsylvania who want to come up and stay for a weekend or a week or whatever. So it's not that far, Mm -hmm. but some people just, they want to be really close to where there's a pizzeria or a Starbucks or something, right? And they want to be in that urban kind of thing for for recording. That's totally cool. There's places for you. But if you want to get away and you want to focus on your music and you want a recording experience where you don't feel like you're stuck in a traffic jam in a taxi cab in midtown Manhattan during rush hour and that little fare meter up front's going tick, 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 but you're not getting any recording done, then come here because we've been pretty generous with our pricing to a certain point. Now, what we want to do is create an environment, especially for outsider artists, right, or just artists who normally wouldn't be well served by the industry have a place to go where they feel the safe creative bubble where they can come here and not be judged and expose their artistic inner selves so i kind of got this zen buddhist thing going on and i mean it's not like a rick rubin thing but i try to give people this welcoming feeling and want them to feel comfortable and actually by law because i am ordained as, as a buddhist like priest Anything that's discussed with me, I have to speak have confidential. So people can really open up to me about the meaning of a song or what's really behind those lyrics, right? And I can get into these relationships with people where it's more than just me pushing at the record button and then reading the newspaper and then hitting stop when they're done. I really try to get into music with people to the point where I'm trying to understand their journey and the emotions and, and the picture they're trying to paint, the drama and that roller coaster of of ups and downs and, you know, twists and turns. So that that's what Electric Owlworks was meant to be, was a place for people to come, feel safe, be affordable, and get that classic residential recording studio experience at a rate that an indie artist can stomach. Because the days of big studios are kind of hurting and a lot of them have taken a hit. And with COVID, so many more people have recorded themselves that it's hard to keep a studio and running. So you have to have some value-added services, I think. Mm-hmm. So our music publishing and our little indie label thing, we just want a place where people feel that they can come and make art. So we have guest accommodations for eight, and I guess we could fit more if we had to. So we can get like six or eight people yeah. in here. But yeah, the, the house is huge. Well, let me ask you about your financial philosophy and how you've handled the financial end of this building and your future plans yeah. of the studio. It sounds like you're you're stepping through your Dolby Atmos thing, kind of like I am, selling off gear and et cetera. So what is your position there financially? How do you think you handle things and what is your thought process on that? Well, the first thing I would say is that my wife, who is the 50-50 partner with me in the business, in the LLC, she has her MBA. Great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So first things first, yeah, she she's on top of that stuff. So any moves that we do go through her scrutiny, which is awesome. In my corporate life, before I was doing recording full-time, I was a senior level IT executive and managing large organizations and teams across the world, multi-million dollar budgets. So 
I have that fiscal expertise in the background where we're both really careful about managing money and we can put stuff in spreadsheets or QuickBooks and all that. So one of the things that attracted us to the residential recording studio was that your overhead is going to be a lot lower than renting a space, right? Mm -hmm. Or going out and buying someplace. So it's like, if Rudy Van Gelder can make all those amazing jazz records in his parents' living room, then what the heck, right? So <laughs> so that was our first thought was, we want to live in a house that we own anyway. So why don't we just incorporate one wing of the house as the studio and the rest of it is where we live? And from a financial standpoint, that makes things a lot easier. It's tricky because you got to be able to separate your work life and personal life, but if you have separate rooms and kind of house rules and things like that, it works. So one thing is to keep your monthly burn rate down. So how we manage it is just don't be extravagant. You know, I'm not just not out buying crazy gear all the time or buying plugins. I do painstaking research and I almost do it like I was working for a big corporation again where I was looking at a project and I'd have to get three competitive bids or four competitive bids and do the research. So what I do is I continue that that discipline in the studio where I don't do anything without research and competitive bids. And then I run it by my darling MBA wife <laughs> and <laughs> see what she thinks. So we're really fiscally careful about that stuff. You just just don't blow money on stupid things. That said, she buys me some pretty awesome Christmas presents and things that are really for the studio, but birthday presents are just weird old microphones and things like that. But <laughs> but yeah, we, we try to be really fiscally conservative. We look at various financing options. Uh, we try not to throw stuff on credit cards as, as you do. We try to do cash only. And I used to run a business. I had an IT business like 15 years ago. And I did that entire IT business with positive cash flow. I had no credit. So I am a big fan of trying to live within your means kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So just finding ways to be creative at a high level of quality without spending a ton of money. Because the thing is, if we can keep our costs down, right, we can keep the costs down that we have to pass on to the artists. So if I can come in at half the price of a big studio or two thirds the price of a big studio and still keep the lights turned on, that's great. Do you diversify the the type of clients that you have as far as like do stuff other than music? Yeah, actually, over the last year, uh, I started doing editing for podcasts. I'm doing the editing for the Perilous Pauline podcast. And then there was a COVID based benefit up here called Band Together Buffalo. So it was basically a virtual battle of the bands. So they had all these bands kind of playing these live shows that were videoed, but in an empty house, of course. And people could go online and vote and they needed all that stuff mixed and mastered. So they already had two mix engineers. So I ended up mastering like, I don't know how many hundreds of songs. One of the other things I did was offer consulting in a way, I guess it's one way to put it. A lot of people who were trying to self-record would call me up and they would consult with me about, geez, I'm trying to record myself at home. So I'd kind of work out deals where I'd get to mix it or get to master it, or, or they'd give me, you know, some kind of compensation for consulting and basically talking them through a zoom meeting, like, Hey, show me your setup, show me your interface, where you're putting your mics. And I was like the virtual engineer kind of helping people. So 
if I can find ways to help artists doing things like that. So I've been giving some free training, which I'm yelled at and told that I shouldn't do, but you know, I was giving some free training away, like mixed classes and stuff like that. But I just like sharing the information and I miss the days of like people hanging out around the water cooler at a studio. Where can people find out more about you, Chaz? The website is electricowlworks.com. That's all one word. So www.electricowlworks.com. We are on Facebook. You can find me personally as Charles H. Ruth III, as you mentioned earlier in the opening. You can find me on Facebook as Charles H. Ruth III or Electric Owlworks or EOW Audio. On Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, we are EOW Audio. I know we have a demo reel up on YouTube. So on YouTube, we're also EOW Audio. So you can see some of the artists who we've worked with and some of my silly videos. And and then on Spotify, there is an Electric Owl Works artist playlist of various artists that we've recorded, mixed, mastered, done pre-pro for, and all that stuff. So I'll put a link in the show notes to all of that audience. And you can Thank go you. and click on your favorite areas to click on. <laughs> well, Chaz, it's great to see you and it's great to chat with you and really get the lowdown on your background. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to accommodate me here the day after Thanksgiving. My pleasure. And we didn't even talk about gear, <laughs> which is cool in a way, right? I know. That's, it's, it's Black Friday and we didn't talk about gear. That's the way I do it, you know? Yeah, awesome. Well, I tell you what, you take care and thank you so much and enjoy your snowfall there in New York. And until next time, I'll talk to you later. Take care. All right. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Chaz Root here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, there is a guest suggestion form at workingclassaudio.com. Head over there and fill that out. If you have a comment, you can always email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com, or there is actually a contact form at workingclassaudio.com. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show with the magic voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. 
many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.